Amen. We're, we're uh, continuing our series, Church in the Wild. We're going through 1 Peter, and today we're in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 10. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that, so that you may reclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Thank you, brother. Lord Jesus, as we continue to examine what it means to be the church in the wild, would you give us insight into your word? Would you remind us what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be people who are included in the family of Christ and yet looked at as outsiders by the world. We desperately need your help. We need your spirit and we need your power. Forgive my sins, Lord. Forgive our sins and be with us now as we look at your word in your name. Amen. So we're in this series on 1 Peter and you'll remember that the context of the whole book of 1 Peter is that there is a church in the wild. There's a church that's in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, and Peter is writing to them from Rome to encourage them because they're scattered and they're social outsiders. They don't have cultural power, and they're beginning to be persecuted. And it's actually a really helpful book for us today because the type of persecution that they're going through is not physical persecution. They're They're not being tortured. It's more public shaming, a loss of status. It's them feeling like when they show up to things, they're not really welcome there. And their opinion and their values as Christians is not welcome there. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what's happening now in our culture as the culture shifts into what we call a post-Christian era. See, before you could be a Christian and your value system would line up even with people who are not Christians. But now as the culture shifts right under our feet, the values of the culture are almost anti-Christian, anti-gospel, anti-Jesus. And so we find ourselves in this place where there's a lot of pressure and we feel as if we're outsiders. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. Consider this an opportunity to get a sneak peek at how Christians are dealing with the shifts that are happening. What happens though in a Christian's mind, and I think in our minds, is when the culture begins to shift like it does, we begin to start to question a lot of things. God, what's going on? Why, are, why is there so much pressure on us and on our faith? 
Is the gospel still true? I mean, I know I was saved and included in that good gospel story, but am I still in that gospel story? Am I still in the gospel story? What happens when Christians begin to lose their frame of reference in the gospel is that uh, bad things happen. Sometimes in the church, the church begins to turn in on itself. It begins to bite and devour one another because the pressures of the outside are, are too much. Sometimes as Christians, we can just put each other down rather than joining together and saying, okay, what's out there? How do we face it together? We can put each other down or we can just check out of church. It's too hard to be a Christian and this thing called the church is such a beautiful mess. I would just rather walk with Jesus by myself. So I'm going to check out of church. Those are a couple things that we can do. Another thing that we do is we brush off. We brush off who God, God has called us to be. He has called us to live boldly for the gospel. And we say, you know what? That's a little hard right now. I'm not really sure how to do that. It's easier just to blend in. It's easier just to blend in and shut down to the culture, to just sort of be a chameleon that slides in and out and never really stands up for Christ or shares Christ or lives for the gospel. But brothers and sisters, we're still in that gospel story. Nothing has changed. The world might have changed, but Jesus has not changed. He is the same. And we are rooted in him. And our story and our identity and who we are is found in Jesus Christ and the good news of his life and death and resurrection. And that does not change. And so rather than putting each other down or checking out or brushing off or blending in, we've got to go up. We've got to up. We've got to grow up. We've got to build up. We've got to back up, stand up, but certainly don't shut up. First of all, we have to grow up in our salvation. Peter starts off by saying, therefore, rid yourself, and he lists these behaviors. Now, he's pointing therefore back to the passage that Philip preached on last week. And he's saying, because of the gospel, because you have been saved, rid yourselves of anti-gospel behavior. Don't turn on one another in the church. And he lists these anti-gospel attitudes and behaviors. He says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Now, malice is an internal desire to injure. Deceit is telling a semi-truth to get what you want, leaving out the whole truth, because if you tell the whole truth, you won't get what you want. Hypocrisy is portraying an image of yourself that does not correspond to reality. It's not who you really are. Envy is a resentful desire because someone got something you want and you think you deserve it, so you're envious of them. And then slander is a false statement to damage somebody else's reputation. And none of these behaviors and hard attitudes correspond to the gospel. They're all anti-gospel actions and attitudes. They come from a heart that's failing to trust in the love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. They come from a place where we're, we're questioning whether God is actually good towards us and whether he really wants to father us. And ultimately, all of these behaviors damage this gospel community. They damage God's blended family. And they don't come from the gospel. Malice and, and a desire to injure someone else you're operating with that person as if you want them to get what they deserve. But the gospel says you didn't get what you deserve. In fact, Jesus took what you deserve on the cross. 
And so malice is not part of the gospel. Malice is anti-gospel. Deceit, which is telling that half-truth in order to manipulate. It's keeping things in the dark in order to get what you really want. But in the gospel, you bring your sin into the light. And Jesus forgives and accepts you as you really are. And so deceit is a non-gospel action. Hypocrisy is portraying an image of yourself that's not true. It's, it's pretending. Yet, we can't pretend with God. He knows exactly who we are, and he has paid for the real you. He has paid the price with Jesus' blood for the real you. And therefore, hypocrisy and pretending doesn't line up with the good news of Jesus Christ. Envy, that resentful desire that someone else got what you should have gotten. It's really just anger at God. It's really just saying, God, I should have gotten what they got, and you don't see it, and so I don't trust you. But yet, the God of the gospel sent Jesus Christ to provide what we need, the blood of Jesus. And he's promised to father us, and he has promised to care for everything that we need. And so envy doesn't line up with the gospel because it's not a trust in the God of the gospel. And then slander. Slander is a false statement about someone. And I was thinking about this. Now, why would we slander someone? Why would we say something false in order to bring someone's reputation down? And I think it's because of this. When someone else's reputation or identity feels threatening to me, like if they're better off than I am, they're more popular than I am, or, or just something about them feels threatening to me, my natural reaction would be to say something false about them because I want to feel better about myself. Because my identity, I'm not finding my identity in Jesus Christ, but rather who they are and what I think they say about me. If someone is in a great place in life and I'm not, I want to say something bad about them because I'm feeling insecure about who I am. But that's not a gospel action. A gospel action is to find your identity in Jesus Christ, whether your life is going great or whether your life is going poorly. And so slander, making up a false statement about someone, is really just because we're not finding our identity in Jesus Christ and his gospel. The gospel is there for us to grow up into. Your identity is in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. He has taken your sin and your guilt and your shame on his cross so you don't have to pretend about who you are. You can come as you really are to the cross and find your identity in him. He has taken on the wrath that you deserve. You have not been treated by God as you deserve. And so in the gospel, don't treat other people as they deserve, but treat them with grace. Your identity is in Jesus Christ, and therefore you are God's beloved child. He's got his eye on you. He knows more about your situation, more about your heart, more about your job, more about your family than you do. And he cares about every detail. And when you begin to believe that, it sets you free. You see that, G that God does love you, though you were stuck in sin and, and under his judgment and at risk for eternal separation from him. And God's great love for us, the Father sent the Son. And the Son came and suffered and died on the cross on your place. He was put on the cross and punished in your stead that you might be forgiven and be called a child of God. And so our relationship with God has moved out of the courtroom and into the family table where we sit down together as family with God. 
And all those actions, slander and malice, are really just moving back to the courtroom. It's really saying, I want that courtroom non-gospel mentality. I, I want judgment. I want payback. But the gospel is about love and sacrifice and relationship. I mean, do you realize that God is not sitting at the family table scrutinizing your every move? He loves you. He has not dealt with your sins as they deserve. He has given Jesus what you deserve and given you everything Jesus has earned. Accept it. Live out of the gospel and grow up in it. In verse 2, Peter says, Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up in your salvation. Peter's telling us, go deeper into the word, go deeper into the gospel, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. You've seen everything he's done for you in Jesus Christ. You know he's good. Grow up in that salvation. Don't move past the gospel. Go deeper in the gospel. And that's everything that tonight is about. It's about gospel power. It's about rooting our identity and our life in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And you find that he's an unlimited source. There's unlimited grace for us to go deeper in the gospel, to grow up in it. Peter tells us, as you come to him, it's the sense of ongoing relationship with Jesus. It's, it's not that Jesus just died for me and now I'm trying to follow God without Christ. No, I still need Jesus in my walk with God. He is the source of all life. As we come to him, we have ongoing relationship with him because God is building something on top of Jesus. God is building something on the foundation of Jesus. And so we're not just to grow up, we're to be built up or to build up. Peter goes on and says, as you come to him, and he uses this interesting term, a living stone. A living stone. See, Jesus just wasn't just a teacher about God. He didn't just teach people about loving God. Nor was he just someone who died on the cross for our sins, which he did do. When he says living stone, he's the foundation of God's new resurrection movement in this world. In other words, Jesus, when he rose from the grave and when he defeated death and when he kicked open the tomb, it was the start of God doing something new in this world, being built on the resurrection of Jesus, who is the living stone. Death is still present, but it's not the king. Jesus is the king, and he is the foundation of God's new movement of power and love and forgiveness in this world. When Christ died and rose again, he paid the penalty of sin and he broke the power of sin. God is using Jesus as the foundation of a movement of new life in this broken world. Jesus was rejected by men, but chosen and honored by God as this living stone. And what Peter tells us is just as Jesus as is a living stone, that we are being built together on top of this living stone. In fact, he calls us living stones. In other words, what Jesus has done in the resurrection of Christ is now bearing fruit in us. Now, some of you might say, you know, I'm dumb as a rock. But from God's perspective, you are a living stone. The resurrection movement has taken root in your heart and your life has changed. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but God is working in you. You are alive in Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ is working its power in you. 
It's not just something that when we die, we eventually rise from the grave, which is true. It's happening right now. God is doing something right now in us, built on Jesus, but in us. We are resurrection people who are part of a resurrection movement. We're new creatures with, with new life. The Spirit of God now lives in us and is bringing new life in us and through us. But it's not happening as individuals. It's happening together. When he says, as you come to him, what he's really saying is, as you all come to him. He's speaking Southern. He's not talking about me, but he's talking about we. He's talking about a fellowship of people who are being built together. Being built together on the foundation of Jesus Christ. I love our little towers of Babel back here. That's what we call them. And we set these up. I'm going to take one of these bricks. You know, this really doesn't do much by itself. I mean, we can lay it down there. Uh, it only really works if it allows itself to be built up together with everything else. It only, it only really works if it allows God to engraft it, to build it on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We're going through a time right now where we're asking people, we've done a membership class, and we're asking people, um, are, you, are, you, are you ready to become a member? And I've gotten some great questions. One, one question is, is church membership biblical? And my answer is, well, if you look through the Bible, there's no place in the Bible that it says, thou shalt join a church. It doesn't say that. But what it is say is, be built together. Be joined together. Be built up on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And honestly, if you're by yourself, there's really not much that can be built on top of you. In fact, I know a lot of Christians who do this. They'll say, you know what? I'm going to come to this church for just a little while. And then, oh, I lost that. And then I'm going to come over here to this church for a little while. And then, and then this church for a little while. But nothing's ever built on them. We're being encouraged to commit. Church membership, that term isn't necessarily found in the Bible, but what's all throughout the scriptures is this idea of committing, of being built together, of saying, I'm in, man, I'm, I'm here. I know it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but I'm not just going to dip out when it does get uncomfortable. I'm going to allow myself to be built in as a living stone with this community together with Jesus. I know some of you, that's scary. Some of you had bad church experiences, right? Anybody had a bad church experience? Conflict, leadership, something. Okay, we've all had them. Amen. But let me challenge you. If you're not rooted in a local church, you will not grow as a Christian. Wait a minute, pastor. I read my Bible every day. I go out and do evangelism. I, I bounce around and encourage other churches. Uh-uh. You've got to be rooted in a local church. You must be rooted in a local church. Otherwise, you're just doing LinkedIn Christianity. You're like this loose network, like LinkedIn on the internet, where you're just sort of there until it gets hard. But those moments when it gets hard is actually when you grow. Those moments when, you when you're committed and when you stick it out and you see it through is actually when you grow. See, people approach church membership or churches a little bit as if it's bodybuilding. And so people will go, look, you know, I'm reading my Bible every day. But what they don't realize is that they're skipping leg day. And if you go to church, you will have a total body workout. But if you're on your own, you won't be challenged in other areas to grow. 
And I don't know if you've seen these memes on the internet where people work up their total upper body, but they skip leg day. It's totally lopsided. They've got these really slim legs and this huge upper body. That's what it's like to be a Christian who's not part of a church because you're sitting there flexing on your own, but you don't realize there's other areas that are not being challenged that get challenged when you actually join a church. When you give yourself up and say, Lord, build me into this group of living stones on the foundation of Jesus Christ. John Tyson and Heather Grizzle put it this way. If you think about church as a loose network, the problem with sort of being in a loose network is that as soon as there is conflict, people withdraw to their private concerns. If there is no interpersonal conflict in your life, no elements of your character that are being confronted about, you are networking. You are not in close community. Yet an accountable community does not just confront, it remains united despite disagreements. It's defined by covenant loyalty. A covenant is distinct from a contract in that each side agrees to uphold their side of the agreement whether the other is faithful or not. A part of being in a church is that you say, I'm all in. But everyone else says, I'm all in on your behalf as well. It's more than just saying, I'm going to show up and sit in a pew. It's saying, we're doing this together. We're part of the resurrection movement of Jesus Christ, and we're in it. And if you mess up, I got your back. And if I mess up, you got my back. And if I do something stupid, chase me down and tell me I did something stupid. But I'm going to do the same for you because we're family. We're spiritual house. We're being built together by Christ. We're a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood together. The Bible teaches this doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. And that means that everyone in Christ is an equal representative of Christ. Uh, I'm a pastor, but you are also a representative of Jesus Christ together with me. And what that means is together, we are bridge builders between God and the community. That God's using us to spread the message of the gospel, the message of the resurrection. And together, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. That's what the text says. But think about this. It's impossible to offer spiritual sacrifices to God by yourself. Because your sacrifice is often loving your neighbor. It's loving someone next to you. And so even as a holy priesthood, this idea of being together, of committing, of saying we're in this, is found all throughout scripture. We are a spiritual house. We are the new temple of God. We are the priests together that represent God in our city. That's really the point of church membership. It, it, it's about a commitment to be built up together. Craig Brian uh, Larson adopt some, adopted something from Eugene Peterson and says this, being a church member is a vocation. It's a way of life. It means participation in an intricate web of hospitality, living at the intersection of human need and God's grace, inhabiting a community where men and women who don't fit are welcomed, where ne neglected children are noticed, where the stories of Jesus are told, and people who have no stories find that they do have stories, stories that are part of that Jesus story. And I love this part. Being a church member places us strategically, yet unobtrusively, at a heavily trafficked intersection between heaven and earth. That's really what the text is saying. That's what Peter's getting at. When he calls us this spiritual house, he's using Old Testament temple imagery to say the touch point of God 
between God and this earth is the church. It's us. We're his representatives. We are the dwelling place of his Holy Spirit. Together, we are at the intersection between heaven and earth, the place where God dwells. And so don't just grow up, but be built up together on Jesus, the living stone, as living stones. Peter goes on to say in verse 6 through 8, he says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they were destined to do this. They were destined for this. Now, we need to back up for a second, because Peter wants us to examine this gospel stone that he keeps talking about. He calls Jesus a cornerstone, and a stumbling stone, and a rejected stone, and we need to back up and examine that, because it it confronts a few of the, the ideas of our time. The first is that Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter, who Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, is now calling Jesus the foundation of the church. So there's a lot of belief out there that Peter is actually the foundation of the church because Jesus said, on this rock, and he pointed towards Peter, I will build my church. But here we have Peter calling Jesus the foundation of the church. So what's going on? Well, in Matthew, when Jesus says Peter's the foundation of the church, he's not talking about Peter as an individual, but Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, if you come from a Catholic background, that's confusing a little bit. You're trying to figure that out. But what Peter is saying here is that he's not the cornerstone. He's not the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. Jesus is the cornerstone, but he's also the stumbling stone. I don't know if you heard as I read through that passage just a second ago, but it's a little offensive. It said people will walk by Jesus and stumble over him, and the fate of their destiny depends on what they do with Jesus. Jesus is a stumbling stone. Jesus is often rejected because there's a claim that he's the exclusive way to God. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And a lot of people stumble over that claim. They say, it can't be. It can't be. Because we live in this spiritual smorgasbord where I can sort of pick and choose what I want. And so a lot of people look at this stone that God is building his new resurrection movement on and say, it's not for me. There's no way that can be it. Especially when he's building us on top of Jesus. And they look at the church and we're just a mess. But what Peter is saying is, no, 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 no back up, re-examine. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way to find salvation. He is the only true spiritual path. Now, I know that is offensive. That's offensive in our culture because the idea in our culture is that there's this spiritual mountain and there's all these different paths that we're going up. And so the Christians are over here and And there's other people that are coming up the path for their religion here and here. And it's really all going to the same place. We just can't see those other paths. That's what's taught in our culture. That doesn't work. Because what the person telling that story is really saying is, you can't see that your spiritual path is just like other people's paths, but I can. 
In other words, I'm above the mountain. I can see all spiritual realities. It's actually quite arrogant. Because so many religions teach such different things. And to say that they're all the same and that you can see that, it's actually quite arrogant. That's quite offensive. Not only that, but that's an exclusive truth claim in and of itself. People say, listen, when you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that's offensive because it's exclusive. But when you say all spiritual paths lead to God, that is an exclusive truth claim in and of itself. You can't write off the Bible's claims about Jesus being the exclusive way. Because to even say that is to make an exclusive claim yourself. And so you have to wrestle with what Jesus says. He, he is the stumbling stone. You come to him and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We would invite you today, if, if, if you're wrestling with spiritual things, we would invite you, first of all, bring your questions. We're not afraid of questions. We have questions. But secondly, look again at Jesus. Look again at the beauty of his character. Look at what he did for us on the cross. Look at how humble he was and yet how glorious he is now. And we would invite you to give your life to Christ today. He's the cornerstone. He's the stumbling stone. But he's also the rejected stone. As we build on top of Jesus, as God builds us together, we have to understand that Jesus, our foundation, is rejected by man. See, there's this belief in the church that if I come to Jesus, he will make me happy, healthy, and wealthy. I'll find favor with man. My life will turn around and everything will go great. But the foundation we're building on is chosen and honored by God, but rejected by man. And so for us to think that our lives are going to get better and we're going to find favor with people because we're in Christ, it's wrong. Jesus is a rejected stone. And as you and I allow ourselves to be built up on him, we have to understand that we might be rejected as well. But the good news is that rejection does not mean you're out of the gospel story. When you're persecuted for your faith, it doesn't mean that the gospel has failed. You're still in the gospel story. And so even as we back up, we have to stand up. Stand up as gospel people. The world might say that we're despised. The world might dishonor us. The world might say you're the scum of the earth. But we're God's gospel people. And therefore, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are people gathered specifically for God's possession and delight. We are God's gospel people. As a chosen race, we're coming together from black, white, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, rich, poor. We're being gathered together. Those of us who have said Jesus is the way, we're being included into the family of God and he's making this new family of people, a chosen race. That's a royal priesthood. They're kings and priests. I don't know if you heard one of the songs that was playing in the break. It said, you're royalty. You're royalty in God through Christ. You're royalty, but it's not so you can sit on a throne. It's so that you can go and represent him in this world as a priest. That's what a priest does. But we're also set apart. God has set us apart as a holy nation and as a people for his own possession. And that means that though the world despises us, 
We are God's treasure. I don't know what that item is in your dresser or in your desk that you would not want, you would run and grab if there was a fire, that you would want to protect at all costs. That's us to God. We are his special possession. We are his treasure. He loves us. We are his gospel people. Once we were not his people, but now we are his people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Those phrases are taken from the book of Hosea. In the midst of this mess of human sin and brokenness, where these people were just rebellious and awful and not following God, and yet their sin and rebellion did not stop God from bringing them to a place of repentance and bringing them back into his people and showing them mercy. And what that means is you and I, in our sin and brokenness, have brought in through the same way. God has shown us mercy and included us in his people, even though you and I are still broken and sinful people. We are his special treasure and possession. We're a mess, but we're part of his people. We don't deserve mercy, but we have received it through Jesus Christ. So stand up. Stand up. And certainly don't shut up. Don't shut up about the God of the gospel. Verse 9 tells us that God has done all these things so that we might proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That we might proclaim the praises of the God of the gospel. By singing about him as we've done. By going out in the donut army and sharing about him on July 4th. The reason that you and I are here is to share the glories of God and his gospel with the very people who reject us because of it. That's why we're here. We're here to share the gospel with the very people who reject us because of the gospel. We're here to be in the mess with the message, bringing the hope of the gospel to this broken and dark world. I love this story. I've heard it a few times. This is found in a book uh, by John Tyson and Heather Grizzle called A Creative Minority, and he quotes it from another book, uh, from Sky Jathani's book, Futureville. But he talks about a, a war that was happening uh, in Sarajevo. And there was people that were dying, and there were bullets that were whizzing by, and, and just the day before he, he mentions this event, a bomb had gone off at a bakery and killed all these people. And he tells this story about a cellist a cellist who went right where the bomb had got off near the bakery and pulled out a chair and began playing the cello in war-torn Sarajevo. And I want to read this to you. On May 28, 1992, the main cellist in the Sarajevo opera dressed in his formal black tails, and he sat down on a fire-scorched chair in a bomb crater to play Albanoni's Adagio in G minor. The site was outside a bakery in Smoljevich's neighborhood where 22 people waiting in line for bread had been killed the previous day. You, you see the scene? He's sitting in a bomb crater in a burned chair next to a place where death had happened the day before. During the siege of Sarajevo from 1992 to 1995, more than 10,000 people were killed. The citizens lived in constant fear of shelling and snipers, while struggling each day to find food and water. Smodjlovich lived near one of the few working bakeries where a long line of people had gathered when a shell exploded. 
He rushed to the scene and was overcome with grief at the carnage for the next 22 days, one for each victim of the bombing. He decided to challenge the ugliness of war with his only weapon, beauty. Known as the cellist of Sarajevo, Smodzilovich not only performed outside the bakery for the next 22 days, but continued to unleash the beauty of his music in graveyards, at funerals, in the rubble of buildings, and in the sniper-infested streets. He said, I never stopped playing music throughout the siege. My weapon was my cello. Although completely vulnerable, Smodzilovich was never shot. It was as if the beauty of his presence repelled the violence of the war. His music created an oasis amid the horror. It offered hope to the people of Sarajevo and a vision of beauty to the soldiers who were destroying the city. As you and I go through life, we go through the city, we go through the brokenness of this world, we are like that man playing the cello. As we proclaim the beauties of the God, of the gospel, who has brought us out of darkness and into light, we are showing the world that there is something more than bullets and carnage. There is something more than sin and darkness and death. There is our God, the God of the gospel who has saved us and offered us hope. And though the world may come against us, though we might feel the pressures, our calling as followers of Jesus is not to put down or brush off or check out or blend in because we're still in that gospel story. We're still part of Jesus. We're still part of the resurrection movement. Our calling, therefore, is to grow up, build up, back up, stand up, but don't shut up. Don't shut up about the God of the gospel. You have been born again through the living and enduring word, the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the lord endures forever in his word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you let's pray lord jesus may the may these words bring transformation in our hearts and we confess that we are trying to keep up with the changing world and yet maybe the better move is just to see what you're doing in the gospel Lord, would you change us and give us boldness to live as your people right here and right now in this city. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me now as we sing about Christ, our cornerstone?